Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. American children account for more than 90% of all children killed by firearms in high-income countries. In fact, in the first decade of the 21st century, more than 20,000 children died from firearm injuries in the United States. But for survivors, recent evidence suggests that they have a higher mortality than survivors of other types of injuries, such as motor vehicle collisions, in the next few years following their injury. However, research on long-term outcomes in these children is sparse, and until now, no studies have examined long-term mortality among these pediatric survivors of firearm violence, nor compared these outcomes to those who survive other forms of assault and trauma. Having better data on children impacted by gun violence could play an essential role in identifying opportunities for prevention and serve as the springboard for further research to guide evidence-based policy change and resource allocation. So today we're grateful to be speaking with Dr. Ashkan Schadenfer, chief author of an upcoming AEM article entitled Long-Term Mortality in Pediatric Firearm Assault Survivors, a Multicenter Retrospective Comparative Cohort Study. Dr. Schadenfer is a pediatric emergency medicine attending and the director of emergency ultrasound at UCSF Children's Hospital in Oakland. He attended medical school at UCSF and pursued both his master's in public health and pediatric residency training in Boston before returning to Oakland to complete fellowships in pediatric emergency medicine and point-of-care ultrasound. He is passionate about public health, advocacy, and programmatic perspectives to address social determinants of children's health and the systemic issues that lead children to the emergency department. And he would like to express his gratitude to his mentors and collaborators at Highland, CHO, and UCSF to help shine a light on gun violence, a complex issue that impacts many of our communities. He's being interviewed today by Dr. Scott Pasichow, a PGY4 in emergency medicine here at Brown. Don't forget to hit the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Hi, Dr. Shaheen Farr. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so we'll jump in. Uh, do you mind giving us a quick summary of the paper uh, for those who were not able to read prior to listening today? Yeah, sure thing. So just to give a little bit of background first, prior research has repeatedly described the various risk factors associated with falling victim to firearm violence and has shown that youth who survive violent trauma face a proportionally high risk of trauma recidivism. And there's also been a couple of uh, recent cohort studies, including one by several of my co-authors, that demonstrated increased mortality among adult firearm injury survivors. However, research on long-term outcomes among pediatric firearm assault survivors is limited. And so in order to shed more light on the long-term impacts among survivors of childhood or adolescent exposure to this and other forms of community-level violence, we conducted a multi-center retrospective comparative cohort examining the incidence of post-hospital mortality among pediatric survivors of firearm assault, non-firearm assault, and unintentional trauma. The subjects were ages 0 to 16, and they were recruited between 2000 and 2009 from trauma registries at three major trauma hospitals in two counties in the Bay Area of California. 
And we conceptualize the exposed cohorts as representing exposure to differential severities of community level violence. So with firearm assault being the most violent and non-firearm assault being less violent. The comparison cohort of unintentional trauma represents a non-assault based, non-violent form of trauma. And then on the outcome side, the primary outcome was long-term mortality, which we measured as hazard of death from the date of injury per person year. We queried the Social Security Death Master File and the California Department of Public Health Vital Statistics records through December 31st, 2014 to ascertain subjects who died after surviving their initial hospitalization and to determine their cause of death. We made an upfront decision to select various clinical and demographic variables and adjust for them by employing a multivariate Cox proportional hazards analysis. Our hypothesis was that exposure to assault would be associated with increased risk of long-term mortality among pediatric trauma survivors in a dose-dependent fashion by assault-exposed cohort. So it looked like you weren't just comparing assault to other injuries. You also sort of broke out firearms as separate from that. So you had three groups that you were kind of comparing to each other. Is that correct? Exactly. So it's it's hard to really describe a full spectrum of violence. So that's how I initially had conceived of this in my mind. So no, non-violent on one end and, and most violent with firearm assault on the other. But really, we were trying to create some sort of general estimation of exposure to violence and thought that perhaps being exposed to something more violent like firearm assault might might be representative of some higher level of risk. And then being exposed to assault might be higher risk than not being exposed to a violent trauma at all and being exposed just to an accidental trauma. Gotcha. So what were some of the key things that you found from doing this research? Just to give you a little bit of a summary, we had about 400 firearm assault and 400 non-firearm assault and just over 7,000 unintentional trauma patients who survived their index hospitalization and had adequate identifying information for inclusion in our long-term analysis. In the end, there were 3.9% of the firearm assault cohort, 3.2% of the non-firearm assault cohort, and 0.7% of the unintentional trauma cohort who died on follow-up. Surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, two-thirds or 50 out of 75 of all long-term deaths were due to homicide, which caused most of the deaths in all three cohorts. So deaths occurred at a median age of about 19 to 20 after a median of four and a half to six years following the index injuries. In the adjusted hazard model, young adolescent age, male sex, black race, and public insurance were found to be independent risk factors for long-term mortality in the study population. Conversely, young children ages 0 to 5 were at significantly lower risk of mortality during the follow-up period. While firearm assault and non-firearm assault patients experienced a higher incidence of long-term mortality compared to the unintentional trauma patients, after multivariate adjustment, the 95% confidence intervals for the hazard ratios crossed just over one, and so these differences did not actually reach statistical significance. However, when we combined the assaulted cohorts into a single cohort, thereby increasing power, and performed an otherwise equivalent model, we found that being assaulted by any means, with or without a firearm, independently conveyed nearly twice the risk of long-term mortality with an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.9. 
So in your results, you said that the zero to five age range had a lower incidence of mortality. Why do you think that would be? Uh, it's hard to say if that's because there's something about younger age or rather that they were younger and in the end, they didn't reach an age in which they would be at risk for subsequent death because all the subjects overall had anywhere between five and 15 years of follow-up. And so a zero-year-old doesn't really have the chance to reach you know, a median of 19 to 20, as an example, to be exposed to that maybe highest risk period. So in your paper, you stated that you excluded uh, individuals that were victims of suicide or child abuse. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you decided to exclude that group? Sure, no problem. This is probably a more common question that I've received about kind of our study design. And while we intentionally limited the exclusion criteria for cohorts in order to minimize our own introduction of bias, we decided early in the study design to exclude patients who presented for suicide attempt or suspected or confirmed child abuse. This is because the underlying concept for our cohorts definitions was that they represented exposure to different severities of community-level violence rather than domestic violence by caregivers or, or child abuse or self-inflicted violence or suicide. Of course, we recognize that the context of violence are not necessarily so discrete as this and that violence across all of these ecological levels are often related. Literature on both child abuse and child and adolescent suicide is, is rich and includes risks that these individuals face over time as well. But we decided up front to exclude these patients in order to conceptually simplify the story that our findings might ultimately tell if we were to find an association between exposure to assault and long-term mortality. So the next question is a little nerdy and kind of tips my hand as an epidemiologist and um, somebody with an MPH myself. Um, but in your study, you used median rather than mean as you evaluated this data. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that measure of central tendency? I will. I will do my best, uh, <laughs> and and I and I'd love to hear your your thoughts as well. But uh, in my mind, we preferred median rather than mean for m most of our follow up outcomes because we didn't make any assumptions about whether or not they would have normal distributions. And so median would be more robust to um, representing kind of the, the central tendency of an outcome that's not normally distributed. And then um, in my mind, median is generally the preferred measurement in survival and other time to event studies uh, like ours. That's exactly the way that I would have explained it. So. Awesome. Good. <laughs> Glad I wasn't way off there. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about how you handled uh, injuries of undetermined intent in your data? Yeah. So subjects were selected in our study from the trauma registries using ICD-9 external cause of injury codes, which broadly speaking includes the following categories of injury. Accidental, homicide, and injury purposely inflicted by others, suicide and self-inflicted injury, injuries of undetermined intent, uh, as well as some other categories like legal intervention, terrorism, and adverse effects of therapeutics. 
And in general, injuries of undetermined intent were not included in the cohorts with the exception of firearm injuries. Given the focus of our study, we aim to maximize the number of firearm injured patients who were included. However, we had to decide how to categorize these patients, whether as firearm assault or as unintentional trauma. Our decision ultimately ties back to the primary concept underlying our study design. Children caught in the crossfire in our minds, in their communities, are experiencing community violence even if they aren't specifically targeted. And we couldn't be sure how these patients would be classified in the trauma registries. Conversely, prior literature suggests that most accidental firearm injuries occur in the home. So we classified firearm injuries of undetermined intent as assault if they occurred outside the home and as accidental if they occurred inside the home. All right, uh, so what do you think we can learn from these findings? So while it's upsetting, it, it might not be surprising that pediatric survivors of community violence, including firearm violence, are a population who faced increased risks over time, including an increased risk of mortality. And considering that most long-term deaths in our study population were due to homicide, repeat exposure to violent trauma in late adolescence and young adulthood seems to play a central role in conveying this long-term mortality risk. So what can be done to mitigate this risk and who should we target um, for interventions? For me, it was somewhat of a light bulb moment to realize that all pediatric assault patients, regardless of the specific mechanisms, may be at similarly increased risk. In my own setting, in an urban pediatric emergency department where patients experience a confluence of risk factors, the need for evidence-based secondary prevention efforts is, is clear. And on an individual basis, aside from consulting social work, I now take that extra teachable moment to con connect with these patients who maybe are coming in with for assault, um, as well as their families, expressing my wholehearted concern for them, garnering their plans for their future and what they would need to stay safe. We should continue to support and replicate hospital-based violence intervention programs like the San Francisco Wraparound Project and Oakland's Caught in the Crossfire, uh, which was formed through a collaboration between Highland Hospital and our local nonprofit, Youth Alive. And we definitely need to continue to perform research to understand which interventions actually work, for whom, and in what context. Rani et al.'s 2016 consensus-driven agenda for emergency medicine firearm injury prevention research published in Annals is a great resource for aspiring researchers. So what do you think next steps are for this issue? So along with several of my co-authors led by Jessica Pan, who is now pursuing her MPH at Columbia School of Public Health, I'm currently working with the same data set on a follow-up research project that we were planning all along, but are, is now kind of taking shape. We're hoping to further address unmeasured confounding, which is certainly a part of examining a relationship or an association uh, complex like, like this one by incorporating census tract level neighborhood deprivation index variables into the model. 
our sense is that neighborhood level factors in our population may be more predictive of outcomes than individual demographic factors, which uh, are largely non-modifiable factors in contrast with perhaps some neighborhood level factors, which could be modifiable, though that's also challenging. Um, and we'll, we will focus this second study on recidivist homicide among adolescents. Specifically, we'll be investigating whether the relative risk or, or hazard of subsequent homicide after surviving assault compared to unintentional trauma depends on whether or not these adolescents live in deprived neighborhoods. In other words, we'll be examining whether neighborhood deprivation may be an effect modifier or confounder in this relationship. Awesome. That sounds really interesting. I look forward to, uh, to the results from that work. Thank you. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> so myself being a researcher, and I'm sure many of the people listening today are too, um, we all experience challenges as we're doing research projects. Can you talk a little bit about uh, a struggle that you faced as you went about creating this project and what you did to kind of push through and overcome that? Absolutely. So perhaps not surprisingly to someone who has done research like this, even retrospective projects can come with a great deal of struggle. And especially when you're trying to accomplish sound research, data acquisition, abstraction, coding can be tedious, detailed, and exorbitantly time consuming work. And particularly when you're working with data sets across several hospital systems, as well as the state bureaucracy. Um, however, one of the most important setbacks that we had uh, was actually during the design phase of this project. Given that we expected a low incidence of pediatric mortality, we initially had plans to in include school dropout as a secondary outcome. It turned out that statewide educational data is even more protected than uh, mortality data and ultimately is impossible to obtain for a project that would not directly benefit education or the goals of the State Department of Education. Though initially disappointing, I mean, it took us or me about a year of effort before I came to this realization, a year of trying to um, acquire this data. Um, ultimately, narrowing the focus of the project proved to be a huge step forward. To a certain degree, we had to go back to the drawing board to reformulate the essence of our project, including the research questions. But looking back, I feel like the final iteration of our study design was the way it was always meant to be. Awesome. Well, thanks for pushing through, and uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I was really grateful for this opportunity to talk about our work on behalf of the rest of my research team. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Check out the full text of this article at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.